school, is that what everyone's so somber about? I thought, I thought parents are happy when school starts and kids are happy the first two days and then it changes quickly. All right. Some of you guys are already in school, right? So you guys are like, I don't know, I'm just like this, mellow, all right? All right, well, um, so you guys have endured weeks and weeks of guest preachers, and it's probably at that point where you're like, all right, enough is enough. Well, I'm the last of the guest preachers. Pastor Tim will be back next week. Things will return to normal, and uh, I'm sure you guys are going to be happy, and I've never had eight weeks off, so I don't know what that's like, what that feeling is, um, but I imagine it's going to be really nice to come back. Um, so that's great. That It is really amazing that you guys um, made a way for it to happen for him and allowed him to take this time to be with his family and recharge and stuff. And so don't stop praying for him. That's, that's the most important thing. Just keep praying for him. And like I said, everything's going to be back to normal next week. Everyone's going to be happy. Everything's good. Um, we've been going through... Uh, well, I have. I don't know what everyone else has been doing, but um, we've been going through the book of Habakkuk. So uh, we covered the first two chapters the last two times I was there, here, there, here. And today we're going to finish off chapter three so you guys are able to mark another book in your Bible to say, went through that completely. It's a short one, but still counts. Even the little ones count. Um, yeah, and so... I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then uh, we're going to get into it. So if you can, join me in prayer, prayer, please. Father God, as we saw um, some time ago in the book of Habakkuk, it starts out with why. Then the question changes to how long, O oh Lord? We live in a world that has fallen that is full of evil, that at times just seems so overwhelming. But we know that you are active. We know that you are here, you are present, you are working in this world. And we need to be able to see that. So we ask you, Father, in the midst of suffering and trials and tragedy and difficulties, that you... Help us as we struggle with our patience, as we struggle to wait. We ask that you help to show us the amazing things that you're doing. Father, I just pray that uh, today your word goes forth, that your people respond to it, and that in each and every way we are transformed and made to be more like Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we've been going through the book of Habakkuk. And I'm going to try to recap the first two chapters really quick to bring everyone up to speed. And then we're going to get into chapter three. So in the first chapter, as I just said in our, in, in, in our prayer, um, the first chapter of Habakkuk really centers around this, this tension of significant and tremendous suffering that's going on to the people of Israel. And Habakkuk, who's a prophet, is in a great deal of distress and disbelief 
as he literally watches Israel being plundered and taken over by Babylonian forces. Habakkuk's response by looking at all of this is to literally cry out and plead with God. And in stress and in panic, he asks God the question, why? Why, God? His why question is, found with, uh, is followed with another tremendous lament when he asks, how long? And I know each and every one of us can relate to this. We've all been in times of difficulty and pain and suffering, and we literally feel like we are at our limit. We cannot take any more. And we find ourselves in the very same place Habakkuk was. And we cry out to God and we say, why? And we plead, how long, O Lord? Now we all know, or at least we should know, that our circumstances, our predicaments, the suffering that we are in the midst of, is the result of sin. It's the result of the evil in the world. Now, if we're going to be honest, sometimes that sin is our own doing. And sometimes we're just collateral damage from other sin. Regardless, what we go through is challenging, it's painful, it's lonely and oftentimes difficult. But something that we're unable to do, especially when we're in the midst of trials, is seeing things from a different perspective. And that's God's perspective. You see, in the midst of our own suffering, we fail to see things in a different lens. In Habakkuk's day, he was guilty of this. He saw the suffering of his people. And while he would readily acknowledge that it was happening due to their own rebellion and sin, he simply couldn't understand why. And he couldn't understand how long. But God, in his kindness and his grace, replies to Habakkuk and he tells them to wait and watch what he was going to do. And God tells them, it's going to be something amazing. It's going to be something so incredible that even though I'm telling you it's going to happen, you're still going to see it in disbelief. He said, this is going to be so amazing. It's going to be so awesome that when it's done, you will be in awe. And what's interesting is that we're told that, just like Habakkuk was, and we tend to respond with, why and how long? But when we realize that God operates with a full view of what has already happened, what is happening, and what will happen, we're better able to understand the why and the how long. Then a few weeks ago, we looked at Habakkuk chapter 2. And in chapter 2, God gives a deeper answer to Habakkuk. It comes to Habakkuk as a vision. 
one that Habakkuk was commanded to record or write down. And the crux of this vision was this, the just shall live by faith. And I shared this two weeks ago, but I thought it was so profound that I wanted to share it again. Now, let me preface it by saying these aren't my own words. So I'm not quoting myself and being like, it was profound. I want to repeat it. Um, But this is uh, a comment that's recorded in the Talmud by uh, Rabbi Simlai. And he says this, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. David reduced them to 11 in Psalm 15. Micah reduces them to 3 in Micah 6.8. Isaiah reduces them to 2 in Isaiah 56.1. And Habakkuk reduces it all to 1 when he says the righteous shall live by his faith. Most Jewish scholars believe that that phrase, those few words, literally summarize the entire message of the Bible. And this doesn't just apply to the Old Testament, but the New Testament carries this on. It's at the very theme of all of Paul's teaching. S. Lewis Johnson states, The just shall live by faith. It is without question near the soul of Pauline theology. Habakkuk's great text, with his son Paul's comments and additions, became the banner of the Protestant Reformation in the hands of Habakkuk's grandson, Martin Luther. You'd be hard-pressed to find greater praise for any one single text in the entire Bible, like Habakkuk 2.4 gets. The just shall live by faith. Those who have been set apart those who have been declared righteous by God are to live by faith. It means trusting in the one who provides that very righteousness. Trusting in the one that declares someone just. That's the gospel. That is the gospel message. Each and every person is a sinner. Each and every person has rejected God and embraced sin. And the only way a person can be made righteous is through a perfect sacrifice. And in a perfect sacrifice, blood must be shed. Life must be given. And the wrath of God must be placed on that sacrifice. Like I said, this can only happen with a perfect sacrifice. And only Jesus could meet the demands of this. So Jesus came to earth, lived as a man, never having sinned, was crucified and sacrificed, and the wrath of God was poured out on him. By trusting and having faith that this is your only hope, you are declared just by God. And because of that, because of a declaration that's made for you on your behalf, you should be motivated to live a life worthy of that sacrifice. You're called to obedience and service. You're commanded to share that gospel message. You're commanded to make disciples. 
You're commanded to pursue holiness and purity. Or I can just go back to Habakkuk 2.4 and say that the just shall live by faith. That's essentially the summary of the first two chapters, the book of Habakkuk. And so we're going to get into chapter 3. I am going to read the text. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word and join me in Habakkuk chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations and the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering appear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own arrows, the heads of warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon, come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in my Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. There's a lot there, huh? Now as we look at chapter 3, I want to give you guys a framework of where we're moving toward. You see, we need to look at the main theme of chapter 3. 
It's this. God's past action determine the future. God's past actions proclaim the future. See, when we are in the why and the how long, we can get a better understanding of what will happen when we look back and see what God has done. In chapter 3, Habakkuk remembers the past to know what God will do. You see, based on what Habakkuk knew, he could find comfort and peace in what God would do. See, in every battle that's ever occurred, God was demonstrating that in each of those victories, he was establishing his kingdom. Now, a fair question would be to ask, why doesn't God just do that in an instant? Why all this time? Why so many battles? I believe I mentioned this two weeks ago. It's because we live in the already but not yet. We live in a time where everything is already taken place and the future is already determined. It just hasn't been realized. You see, the kingdom is here. The kingdom has been established. But because of our limited perspective, we think it's a long way away. But God sees things from his perspective. He's able to watch everything happen at once. Every possibility, every outcome. He is all-knowing and he is in all places. I don't know about you guys. That's one of God's attributes that I just struggle with. Just being honest. It is really difficult for me to comprehend how God can be here and there simultaneously. Like, he's in Afghanistan right now. He's here. He's on the coast preparing for a hurricane. He's everywhere. Man, I can't wrap my head around that. But that's because I exist in space and time, and God is not bound by those things. I mean, I had one of those feelings. I don't know if this ever happens to you guys, but I'm, I spend a ton of time in my car, and I'm driving someplace, and something will come into me about God, and it literally will shake me to my core. Like to the point where I'm going... Am I crazy for believing this? this is what, so this is what happened to me. A couple days ago, literally, two days ago, I'm driving, and I don't know why the thought pops into my mind. Before everything, God existed. And I don't know about you guys, but when I really ponder that, I can't. I can't understand how God existed before time and creation. Like, where did he exist? What did he do? How long went by before he said, I'm going to create everything? You see, this is, this is what gets me into trouble. And then the next thing you know, I'm slamming on my brakes because I'm thinking about that and not the car in front of me. So don't ponder in your car unless you're a passenger. 
But by knowing that God is not bound by space and time, by knowing that he knows all and he's in all places, it doesn't answer our questions, and that's why we're required to have faith. But see, our faith is not blind. That is such a misconception. We do not have faith into something that's not known. We have faith in something that's absolute. My faith is based on knowing. It's based on knowing who God is, knowing what he's done, and what he promises to do. So as we look at our text, we're going to see that this chapter is really broken into two parts. Verses 3 to 7 is all about God's past action, proclaiming his coming. And verses 8 through 15 are about God's future, proclaiming his coming. So when we start out, we see that Habakkuk is taking us back and looking at the actions of God in Exodus and Mount Sinai. This is in verse 3. He goes to Mount Sinai, and he recalls what happens there, and he speaks of God's character by equating the giving of the law, or the Ten Commandments, to God's holiness. I want to pause right here, because I think it's really important. I hate social media. I despise it. There's so much nonsense on there. There's so much fluff. What started as a great idea to keep in touch with people that are around the world or states away or whatever has turned into the places of the worst theology. You have no idea how many times I'm, I'm like, unfriend, unfriend, unfriend. I can't. That's a person I've known for 20 years, and they're going to notice that I'm not following them anymore. What am I talking about? We see these memes and these little uh, uh, flowery notes or messages. And this is the one I see all the time. God is love. God is love. No matter what the problem is, the response is, hey man, God is love. And I think we need to clear up some some important misconceptions about that. Let me start with this. Is God love? Yes. He is. Absolutely. But I think a lot of times what gets lost is we make that God's primary attribute. Above all things, God is love. Sin all you want, do whatever you want. God's filled with so much love, you're going to get a pass. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how I treat people, if I could just fall back on God as love, everything is going to be all right. Now, some of us, we take God and his attributes, and we turn it into a pie chart. Everyone familiar with a pie chart? Circle. Looks like a pizza. And then we cut slices into it. This portion here, God is love. This portion here, God is mercy. This portion here, God is just. This portion here, God must deal with sin. Wait, let's make that portion really small. And we kind of divvy it up and we assign percentages. 
So first of all, if we looked at that pie chart, if we were going to do a real one, the whole thing would say, God is love. And simultaneously, the whole thing would say, God is kind. God is merciful. You, you get what I'm saying? It, it's, not, it's not portions. It's, it's, it's in its entirety who God is. But above all things, if there were to be a primary attribute of God, it is holiness. It's not love. It is holiness. So what does it mean to be holy? Perfect. Without flaw. Completely and totally self-sufficient. Without need. This is why at Mount Sinai, when the law was being given... God says, tell Israel to be holy because God is holy. You see that connection there? Habakkuk is going back to when the law was being given out, and he's basically saying, you, nation, must be separate and distinct from the rest of the world. It's this very need for righteousness and holiness that started this whole thing back in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2. Habakkuk looking around and saying, this is a mess. But the righteousness of God, which is what we have called to be, is what's required here. Habakkuk cried out to God, with the reminder that God still desired his people personal and national purity and sanctity. Holiness was the call of the day back then as it is still today now. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, without holiness, no one shall see God. You can have all the love in the world. Without holiness, you cannot be saved. You cannot be redeemed. Because of what holiness is and what it requires and demands, we need to have a greater view of holiness. Not only of God's holiness, but our own pursuit of holiness. So first, Habakkuk takes us to Sinai to look at God's past action to proclaim his coming. And then, in verses 3 and 4, he points to God in creation to demonstrate it. He points to the infinite glory of God as it covers the heavens and the earth. He doesn't mean the glory that's reflected in the created order as Psalm 19 does, but rather he means the glory that comes from the result of God's appearance to his people throughout history. Those events should be enough to fill up all of creation with his glory. See, for when he acted like he acted at Exodus, the heavens and the earth were his main spectators, even if people were less appreciative of the magnitude of what they are witnessing. 
You know, that's something about who God is that we always need to remind ourselves of. I know I've said it here before, and it's a regular thing that I tell wherever I preach, when I disciple, is if there's one thing we need to get through our thick skulls, it's you are not special. You're not. Jesus is special. Jesus makes you special only because of Jesus. You see, when it comes to God and his glory and his glory being recognized, it's not for you. It's for him. God is so infinitely amazing and awesome that his own creation cries out how glorious he is. And like in this section, he's not talking about you in creation. God is so awesome and amazing that his non-living creation glorifies him and exists to glorify him. And you just happen to be a witness there. It's like being at a concert and you're sitting in the parking lot kind of like listening from a distance. God's performance is being responded to by his audience and you're not part of it. You're outside of it. That's how amazing God is. He doesn't need us. In and of himself, all that he does is for his glory. And his glory is so amazing, so magnificent, that the, 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 the drips of his glory come down to us and we benefit from it. You're not the subject of his glory. And that would be completely okay if we got through our head, I'm not special, but I'm glad Jesus is special and therefore he makes me special. But me, myself, it's nothing to write home about. I think I told someone earlier that this message was going to be encouraging. and It's so freeing. I know you guys are like, what? Just think about it. I don't have to do anything to earn his praise, his love, his salvation. He does it in and of himself. And now I'm free to just ride those coattails. I'm free to go along for the ride. I'm free to cling to Jesus. In, verses, in verse 5, Habakkuk goes to the plagues in Egypt. And here God is depicted as this king who has pestilence as his herald and plague that comes after him. God here, as he reveals himself, is fully capable of handling all of those that resisted him. And this allusion to pestilence and plague should not have surprised the people of Judah because they had been warned in the curses announced in the law of God that God would send them in to answer for sin. You see, the coming of the Lord, for as much as it's going to be a coming in salvation, is also a coming in judgment. 
keep going in verse 6. We see Habakkuk continue through this, this prayer, this proclamation of God's past. And he says that even the nations were frightened senseless by the coming appearance of the Lord. His presence was so real and so powerful that he dominated the entire scene. The whole cosmos, the whole of creation, shuddered at the approach of the Lord who made it. For here was the only one who was and is eternal. The mountains and the aged hills collapsed in deference to his person and power. You know, I think, again, this goes back to how much we think of ourselves, how highly we think of ourselves. You guys go downtown ever? Anyone go downtown? Some of you guys virtually live downtown, right? Isn't it amazing when you go down there and you see that, 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 that all those skyscrapers? Man, that is mind-boggling. The Sears Tower, I think they finished completion in 1974. Yes, it's the Sears Tower. It's not any other name. It's the Sears Tower, built by the virtually bankrupt Sears Roebuck Company. I don't know how many people knew that, but that's where their corporate headquarters was. It was built after like nine years. And for 50 years, I think, it stood as the tallest building in the world. Such an amazing feat of architecture and skill and engineering. And it took us like nine years to build it. And we sit there and we look at it and we, and we marvel at it. We're like, wow, look what we can do. And God looks at us and goes, the Sears Tower? I built Mount Everest, all the mountain ranges, the Grand Canyon, the moon, the stars, the sun in a second. And you guys are impressed by the Sears Tower? Or 10 Sears Towers? Really? How, how often do we just stop and pause and take a look at creation and go, we are nothing. Mount Everest in a moment. And God just speaks it into existence. This is the God who operated in the past that we doubt and we struggle to believe. And what's amazing, even more so about this, what's going on here in verse 6, is that creation seems to respond a lot more than we do to his coming presence. Creation roars, creation trembles, creation crumbles at the mere approach of God. And we sit and we question and we doubt and we rebel The nations tremble before him. That's all the nations. All of them are frightened, are terrified by who he is and what he's capable of. By what he can do, what he has done, and what he will do. And this is going to continue to happen until he returns. 
in verse 7, things change a little bit. Habakkuk was literally joyfully recalling all the times that God showed up against their enemies. But this time, he's commenting on Israel's response to God showing up. When the people of Israel first entered the promised land, the first enemy they had was Cushion, or Cush. And God appoints Othniel to be a judge, or to be the judge to deliver them from this oppressor. But Israel's problem in Judges is the very same problem that Habakkuk is dealing with right now. God was using enemies to punish Israel. However, what we know is that Israel can be encouraged now by the enemy that God had spared them from, Cushion. God saw them. And hopefully, surely, God would look at now on their affliction, which is people must bear again due to their sin. And this problem concerning Israel and Judges and Habakkuk and the encouragement provided to Israel is a reminder of God's prior intervention on her behalf. And then Habakkuk makes a reference to the curtains of the land of Midian. It's a reference to the Midianites who invaded the land of Israel during the days of Gideon. Gideon was another uncertain servant of God who had to be reassured by what, was God, by what God told him was going to happen by overhearing the Midianites' plan in a dream. All this to remind us that any invading oppressor used by God against Judah or Israel would one day itself be vulnerable. Any pain or grief would be temporary, just as they were in Gideon's day. So now at this point, it's pretty clear to Habakkuk that God is going to use the Babylonians to punish Judah for her sin. And in the face of this terrifying prospect, Habakkuk was given the vision that the just shall live by faith. The vision provides Habakkuk with a hope that's anchored in God and God's work. Not only that, but the past experiences of God's people like at the Exodus, like with Othniel, like with Gideon, indicated that God would come again, not only in judgment, but also in deliverance and salvation. See, because he does this over and over and over again. So now as we move into the second half of the chapter, verses 8 through 15, we see that God's past also proclaims God's future, or the future, I'm sorry. You see, in verses 3 through 7, we see the text change from third person to second person. Habakkuk asks himself these rhetorical questions in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? These ancient deeds of the rebuke of the Red Sea and the Jordan River 
and the coming of God in connection with the thunderstorms, especially at Sinai, serve here as models of what, will, what God will do to answer Habakkuk's fears and an answer to all of history. Verse 8 is filled with these terms depicting the great historical interventions of God when he smote the Red Sea or the Jordan River or the Kishon. And if that thought brought comfort to Habakkuk as he faced this time of grief, it's fair for us to also take comfort in the same kind of hope when we face difficult times. In verse 9, God using thunderclouds as his personal chariots. He gets his arsenal of bows and arrows. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy 32, where the Lord pledges by lifting up his hand to heaven that his sword and arrows would avenge the blood of his servants as they were being consumed by their enemies. You see, at that moment, God had dramatically intervened at the critical hour just as he would in Habakkuk's day, just as he will in the days to come until all of his enemies have been dealt with. You see, the warrior that's being described there, he's not just an ordinary soldier. His weapons and the scope of his battle are cosmic. No mortal or earthly power will be able to withstand any of his assaults. And in sheer terror, the mountains cringe, and the torrents of water crash as their waves acknowledge the presence of this divine warrior. Even the deep, which are the seas, raised up its waves as though exulting over the Lord's appearance. Now another dramatic reminder of how totally different God is from the normal course of events can be seen in verses 11 and 12. An even greater response from nature than that described in verses 9-10 is this dramatic incident that took place one day when in response to Joshua's prayer, the sun and the moon were controlled to give relief to Joshua's weary army. At God's command, the sun failed to appear for an entire day. These awesome description of God's powers over nature can be found in these places if you want to just note them. I can't cover them all, but Psalm 77, 16, Psalm 50, Psalm 68, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 68, verses 32 and 33. Now finally, the answer comes to this rhetorical question that was asked in verse 8. No, God is not angry with the rivers or the seas. His anger is directed toward the wickedness of the nations of the earth. As much as the nations might try, they cannot throw off God's sovereignty and his reign over them. God would thrash them. He would thrash the nations like Gideon thrashed the princes of Zeba and Zalmunna. And what do we do with Habakkuk's persistent question about God's use of more wicked people to punish Judah is finally being answered. Eventually, all nations will be thrashed under fair but certain judgment of God. 
But in verse 13, we're told that God would certainly deliver his people. This term, your anointed, is all of a sudden brought in. And the term your anointed means the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. It's the promise of the Messiah's eventual intervention. And when the Messiah comes, he will strike the head from the house of the wicked. This text is definitely an allusion to the person God would specially anoint to punish the wicked nation. In fact, Isaiah refers to Cyrus the Persian as God's anointed. But Cyrus is only a small example of what, what God would do in the days to come. Verses 14 and 15 depict God's eventual triumph over all of his enemies. And it appears at the moment in history that there's no one on the scene who can take on his powers that confront righteousness. God will allow his enemies to set their own trap. The destruction of the godless will be as severe and swift as the attack of a foreign nation. But just as God had acted at the Red Sea and the Jordan River or on Joshua's long day or when Othniel and Gideon were besieged, he will act in his great day of salvation. The Lord will go forth across the sea on his horses, churning up the waters once more as he had in that celebrated deliverance of Israel from Egypt. These are the benchmarks of what is hoped for in the future to come. Let me wrap this up. History is often looked at with a lot of skepticism and doubt. I mean, how can we know what really happened? Ever talk to someone who's not a believer and you point them to Scripture? Well, how do we know that really happened? How can we possibly know? I mean, can, the, can we trust the authors who recorded the events to record the truth without any bias? Do we think that as we advance in civilization, that the methods that we use somehow are a lot more trustworthy? But we know, just because it's recorded doesn't mean it really happened. You can alter video and audio. However, Christians must be knowledgeable of the past. We cannot afford to just brush off history and say it's not meaningful or inconsequential. This is something that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. If you don't know who he is, you're missing out on one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. I recommend you read Preachers and Preaching, one of the best, best books um, definitely of this century. But this is what he wrote about the importance of biblical events recorded. If God did not actually do the things recorded in the Old Testament for Israel, then the whole Bible may just be a piece of psychology meant to keep me happy. The Bible, however, plainly shows that my comfort and consolations lie in the facts. 
the fact that God has done certain things and that they have literally happened. The God in whom I believe is the God who could and did divide the Red Sea and the River Jordan. In reminding himself and us of these things, Habakkuk is not just comforting himself by playing with ideas, but he is speaking of the things that God has actually done. The Christian faith is solidly based upon facts, not ideas. And if the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then I have no hope and no comfort. For we are not saved by ideas, but by facts. God's past action and future coming in this section of Habakkuk's message has brought us full circle from this first complaint at the beginning of the book. And now God stands face to face with the enemy, the proud. They were at the opposite end of the spectrum from the justified by faith. This great power and apparently all the haughty nations that take Babylon's path will suffer smashing defeat and God's victorious conclusion. The victory over the wicked is described in a memorable picture. God will strike the head from the house of the wicked. How much does that sound like Genesis 3.15? The enemy may bruise the heel of the coming seed of the woman, but God will crush the head of Satan himself. Habakkuk's vision is rooted in the historical part of Israel. Each of the themes that Habakkuk chooses for this hymn-slash-prayer comes from decisive chapters in the history of salvation, the remembrance of God's acts. They serve to encourage Judah in desperate moments to keep on believing. They're elements from the Song of Deborah, the Song of Moses and Miriam, the wilderness wanderings, and several historical psalms. All of these are prayers of praise and thanksgiving to God, responses to his grace. And in this way, the people not only are called to mind with deep gratitude with what God had done, but they expressed it in a most vivid way that God is the one who truly lives. He's the sovereign Lord of history as well. Nothing takes place without his knowing it. History is not irrelevant. It is his story. And he will write its ending as well as its mission statement. There's another historical event that we are privileged to look back on and remember so that we can see what's going to happen in the future. That's the Lord's table. Isn't it amazing that the Lord's table is reiterating what Habakkuk learned? That God's past action proclaim and foretell the future. I get worried sometimes that we don't grasp the magnitude of what we're participating in. For some, it's just a remembrance. For others, there's greater and deeper meaning. But what we are actually going to participate in is the gospel revealed. 
It is that message that is so critical and so important. There is nothing in life more important than learning and knowing the gospel. Literally, a minute before I came up here, someone from my church texted me and said that their nephew had just passed away this morning. Literally, a minute beforehand. Yesterday, a good man lost his battle to cancer, left behind nine children. gospel is the most critical message that we can know and understand it's not only important for us but it's important for those around us and when we come to the table we are saying i believe this this is everything to me and i'm going to make it known to everyone else The friend I was telling you about that just passed from cancer, amazing man. He was one of those people that you just wanted to be around. When you were around him, you literally felt the presence of Christ. He was just so Christ-like. Now, why him? Why did he suffer? And it was brutal. His cancer was extremely rare. No matter what treatments they gave him, actually caused him more pain. And I heard a few days ago, while he was getting some of his chemo, <clears throat> that the pain was so intense that he was literally screaming out the names of his kids and saying, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this to just spend another day with you. I'm sure his family is going through the why and the how long, oh Lord, question. But something that we just don't know, we can't see is God's perspective. That's why faith and trust are so important. The only way we can get through something like this that makes no sense is by knowing that there's a God who is in control, who does love, and is saving. That's why when we go through trials, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't have to respond like the rest of the world. We don't respond with, oh, this life is brutal, it's horrible, it's awful. We respond in, I have a hope. And it's greater than anything else. And it's only found in Jesus. I want you guys to really think about when we talk about sharing the gospel. Is it something that you do? We all say we do. Oh, and I have the opportunity I share the gospel. Really think about it. Do you share the gospel with people that you come across with? Is it a burden? Is it a hassle? Or do you understand that there is a God who is so great and so magnificent that is so holy 
that apart from a person being declared justified, they are doomed for eternity alone, in pain, to suffer. Hell is not a party. It is not a place where everyone's going to get together and be like, yeah, we didn't get to heaven, but whoo, we're here having a good time. It is a place of isolation and darkness and loneliness. And the worst part about it, as if those things aren't bad enough, it is a place with no hope. And for so many people, the hope that they desperately need is only going to come to them when someone shares the gospel. I know we got a bunch of Moody students here. I love seminary. I love Bible college. If you aren't sharing the gospel, it's a waste of time. It is. You're spending a lot of money on some books and a degree that's not going to get you a high-paying job. Sorry. Sorry to break it to you guys. That's the reality. If you're not in Bible college and you work someplace and people work there, your vocation is your mission field. The reason why you are a barber or a bus driver or whatever it is is so that you can share the gospel with people who don't know and have no hope. I can't stress it enough. I'm thankful that my friend confessor knew the gospel. I'm thankful that his kids know the gospel. This person that passed this morning, I, I don't know him. Their fate is already determined. I don't know about you, but that, that rocks me worse than when I try to ponder on who God is and where he is. That someone is no longer alive and they are either in the presence of God or they are being punished in all eternity. So when we come to the table, take it seriously. Take it very seriously. I, I'll, I'll read it straight from Scripture so you know how serious it is. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he did, he had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's God's past action foretelling the future. That it is because Christ died on a cross, shed his blood, was sacrificed for us because of us, will return again. So take a few moments before you take the cup and you drink the wine. Is there any sin that you need to confess? Is your sin laziness? Are you apprehensive to share the gospel message? Confess that. Be in good standing with God and drink the 
eat the bread and take the cup. If you are not a believer, this does nothing for you. There's no magic in it. You won't get any special powers. Instead of taking the cup and taking the bread, take Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him and who he is and what he did. And then go out and share that message. And if you're a believer who has any conflict with another believer, you don't have to take the cup right now. Go reconcile that relationship. Unity is a priority within the church. Go reconcile that relationship and then come back and celebrate that a relationship has been restored and that your witness is sound. Take a few moments. When you're ready, take the cup, eat the bread and drink the wine, and then I'll close us in prayer. And the worship team will come up to lead us out. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you, thank, thank you that you are holy and perfect and amazing and awesome. Thank you for demonstrating who you are in the past by continuously redeeming and saving those in desperate need. We're thankful that that past action of yours tells us who you are, tells us how much you love and care for us tells us that you will do what you set out to do and that in the future everything will be made right we're grateful for your opportunity for the opportunity to hear your word we pray that we respond to it thankful that your word never goes out void but that there is real power in your word that the gospel has the ability to transform and change the worst of sinners and redeem them and make them someone that resembles Christ. Father, I pray for all of us that we don't take that lightly, that we never lose sight of what's at stake. Help us to be bold, to proclaim the truth. Help us in spite of our fears at work, or with friends, or with family, that we know how great a cost it was for Christ to die and endure your wrath so that they can be saved, so that we can be saved. Help us to proclaim that truth 
always, no matter what. Give us the faith that we so desperately need to live as the just. Thank you, Father. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.